Disclaimer. This podcast discusses subjects surrounding demons, demonic possessions, demonic presence, hauntings, and uncomfortable topics related. Please listen with caution. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Truth or Demons. I'm your host, Stevie, and today you're in for a super special treat. Not only do I have some fun voice acting from one of my very talented friends over in London, I also have real, authentic audio recording of Ed Warren from 1976. So settle in and let's investigate this haunting. In this episode, I'm going to tell you all about the Warren's trip across the pond to Enfield, England. So, who has seen the movie The Conjuring 2? Yeah? Okay, so if you have, you know that this haunting was super intense, according to the film. However, you know that I have some things to say about that. Firstly, as a reminder, if a film says things like, based on a true story, or inspired by true events, it almost always means only 2% of the quote, facts, are actually true. See what I did there with that 2%? Yeah? No? (laughs) Don't worry, you will if you don't already get it. Anyways, if you haven't seen the film, that's okay. I'm going to tell you all you need to know. Hopefully. Also, if you haven't seen the film and you don't want me spoiling it for you, go watch it first and I'll be here when you get done. Okay, the film. The Conjuring 2, Enfield, portrays a single mom with four children living in council housing in England in 1977. Only three of the children are really present in the film, but there were four. Two sons and two daughters, Johnny, Billy, Margaret, and Janet. The film revolves around the Warrens traveling to Enfield, England from Connecticut to help the Hardson family, mainly mother Peggy and daughters Janet and Margaret. Janet was 12 and Margaret was 13. The home is experiencing strange levels of activity very suddenly with both neighbors and police bearing witness to the happenings of the home. It started with Janet. She was the first to hear or see anything, followed by her mother and sister witnessing a chest of drawers moving all on its own, followed by pounding and banging on the walls. After the police were called and confirmed that no intruder had entered the home and could find no explanation for the knocking or moved furniture, a chair suddenly slid across the floor, right in front of the police. Then, things got real. Reporters started showing up, big names in the field of parapsychology and psychology were being called, and in come the Warrens to save the day. Mm, No, not quite. Okay, so most of all of that happened. The police filed a report and there is mounds of documentation of the activity from countless sources. However, unlike the movie leads you to believe, the Warrens were hardly involved at all. Thanks to Warner Brothers and the Conjuring franchise, most of the world thanks the Warrens for rescuing a defenseless child dealing with a dangerous entity. Let's talk about that, shall we? Before we get into the actual involvement of the Warrens in this case, let's talk about what happened just a little more. So you have an idea of what was really going on. I did as thorough research as possible to bring you the facts of the Enfield haunting. So... If you have seen the movie, you can trust at least some parts of it to be true. Janet and her sister Margaret and their mother Peggy all claim a lot of the movie's scenes are very accurate when interviewed in present day. So let's talk about what happened. Just like the movie, Janet claims the activity started after she had played with a homemade Ouija board. This is portrayed in the movie, and Janet has stated this in interviews as an adult. The first night something revealed itself to the girls, their mother saw it too. The girls woke in the middle of the night, screaming for their mom. When Peggy reached the girls' room, ready to scold them for making such a ruckus in the middle of the night, a very heavy dresser allegedly slid across the floor in front of all of their eyes, all by itself. There was also banging on the walls they could not explain. They rushed to the neighbors for help, and the neighbors immediately suggested they phone the police. So they did. 
When the police show up, they're expecting to find an intruder, but find nothing and no one. Then, while standing in the Hodgson home discussing the events that just took place and trying to determine the source of some of the knocking, a chair slid across the floor all on its own, in front of everyone, including the police. Now, I feel comfortable saying this is a fact as there is a police report with the officer who witnessed it confirming it in her statement. The police also state they heard banging on the walls. Originally, they speculated some sort of animal in the walls, but could not confirm. The chair moving, however, they had no answers for. Here's a voice actress acting as the female constable in a news interview shortly after the incident. Well, it came off the floor, nearly half an inch, I should say, and I saw it slide off to the right about three and a half to four feet before it came to rest. Um, I checked to see whether or not it could have possibly slid across the floor. I placed the marble on the floor to see whether or not the marble would go in the same direction as the chair, and it didn't. It didn't roll at all. Um, I checked for wires under the cushion, the chair, and I could find no explanation at all. You can see the video for this interview on YouTube. I've put the link in the show notes. Shortly after the police were called to the home, the Hodgson's sort of turned into a media sensation. Word got out and reporters and TV and ghost hunters of all kinds were lining up hoping to get an interview or a glance at the home and into the lives of those inside. Many people have speculated that the Hodgson family wasn't doing so well financially. This is even touched on in the beginning scenes of the film when Peggy is on the phone yelling she can't pay something and is also having an argument with her son over not being able to afford biscuits or cookies for him. This speculation of financial distress led many to say that Peggy perpetuated the happenings in hopes the attention would bring her money. However, both Margaret and Janet have stated they did none of it for money. They simply just wanted someone to believe them. As this media circus grew, so did the happenings. Janet began speaking in the voice of a hoarse old man, a man claiming to be the recently deceased resident of their home, a man named Bill Wilkins. Of course, as soon as Janet gave this name, it was looked into and fact-checked for accuracy. Turns out, Janet was 100% right about the man living and dying in their home. The man's son verified this. Some speculate Janet could have easily found out this information prior to the happenings and then used it to her advantage. But Janet swears she knew nothing of the man before he began using her to speak through. I've wondered if maybe her peers in school heard from their parents that an old man died in that home and they proceeded to tease Janet and Margaret about it. And that's how they knew of Bill. But that's just one of my theories. Along with speaking in Bill Wilkins' voice, Janet would bark and say crude things. Other men's voices apparently came through as well, not just a man named Bill. You can hear Janet and the voices in interviews online. She's repeatedly interviewed and recorded by several investigators and reporters. She's filmed and voice recorded. There's tons of footage of this case. However, skeptics still say Janet was faking. In one interview with Margaret and Janet that you can find on YouTube, the interviewer says something to Janet about the haunting and Janet quickly replies, it's not haunted, and is immediately shushed by her sister, Margaret. I honestly don't know what to make of this clip. There are countless interviews of the children during the happenings and then later on when they're adults. Over time, both Margaret and Janet change things in their interviews and even willingness to give interviews. At one point in Janet's adult life, she was refusing to show her face on camera for interviews and her sister would also speak for her a lot of the time. I found one interview of Margaret giving Morris Gross 100% of the credit for helping her and her family. And then when The Conjuring 2 came out, Margaret and Janet participate in more and more interviews, but this time giving all the credit to the Warrens even going as far as to state the Warrens saved their lives. I roll. <laughs> the inconsistency surrounding the cases of the Warrens is the only reliable factor of their entire enterprise. Inconsistency and mad amounts of embellishments. Continuing on. 
So tests were then run on Janet, mostly led by Morris Gross, sometimes in the presence of others, including a reporter, attempting to disprove her claims or catch her in a lie. One such test was to have Janet hold water in her mouth to see if the voice would still be able to come through, and it did. This was also shown in the movie, but again, there is a big however here. So, however, Janet would tell them she couldn't do it unless everyone turned away from her. I have no idea why they would agree to this if the goal was to prove she wasn't faking, but they oblige and the voice comes through. When it stops, they all turn back to Janet and she spits the water she was holding in her mouth back into the glass. And if you saw the movie, The Conjuring 2, you will remember this happening with Ed, but it actually was a test ran by Morris Gross and his team, not Ed and Lorraine. There are a few scenes where the Warrens meet with the previous investigators, one of them being Morris Gross, and Morris Gross gives Ed the evidence he has. All the evidence obtained in this case and portrayed in the movie was not obtained by the Warrens as portrayed. They just sort of commandeered some of it to make the scenes in the movie. But at least they include Morris and showed him supplying the photos he took of Janet, quote-unquote, levitating, to Ed. And they also discussed the legitimacy of the so-called levitation in the film. It's just that, again, there is no evidence supporting the idea that Ed was actually part of these discussions about Janet. I have not seen Morris ever confirm he shared his findings and discussed them with the Warrens in any of the countless interviews he did throughout his career. There is also so much controversy over the so-called tests performed. Many say Janet could have easily spit out the water while their backs were turned and then put it back in her mouth before they turned back around. Honestly, we just have to accept that we will never know how this particular event actually occurred. Janet stands by her claims to this day. Other things that happened that had so many people convinced of the paranormal activity were the fact that Legos would fly across the room and hit people, seemingly all on their own. Graham Morris, a photographer for the Daily Mail at the time, was supposedly struck in the face by one of the rogue Lego pieces. Janet would also claim to be levitated by the spirit. There are photos of this alleged levitation, but again, so many people have their doubts about them. The photos don't really look like a child levitating out of her bed. They honestly look like a child jumping from her bed. Not all the photos captured the so-called levitation, but instead the aftermath of the girls falling to the floor. Again, these photos really just look like they fell or jumped out of their beds on their own. I've shared some of these photos on the Instagram. It's just really hard to say. A crossing guard, or lollipop lady as they're called in England, claims to have witnessed Janet levitating from her bed through her bedroom window from the street where she monitored the crosswalk. I have something to interject here. Sometimes people who take interest in or even just fear the paranormal seem to be more inclined to believe something they've just witnessed instead of questioning it first. I am so guilty of this. Almost everything I see paranormal-related, I instantly want to believe, before I ever think about trying to debunk it. So who's to say some of these eyewitnesses weren't like that and just wanted so badly to believe it was all true? That brings me to the next point I wanted to address in this case, a point centered around Morris Gross. Morris Gross was a paranormal investigator in England at the time of the Enfield haunting. He was most famous for his work in this particular case. What you might not know is before Morris became a paranormal investigator, he was an inventor and responsible for inventing the rotating advertising billboard followed by funding a consultancy business for designers and engineers. He was a highly intelligent man with lots of drive directed in discovery. So how did this inventor slash businessman find his way into paranormal investigation, you might ask? Well, I have that answer for you. Morris had a daughter, also named Janet. She tragically passed away in a motorbike accident. This led Morris down a rabbit hole of endeavors that involved trying to contact his daughter on the other side, in the spirit world. He claims his family experienced many incidents that led him to believe his daughter was trying to communicate with him. In 1976, he joined the Society of Psychical Research and an organization called the Ghost Club, 
1977, he investigated the infield poltergeist in the house on Green Street. Morris's involvement in the case resulted in the tests of Janet's claims and many video and voice recordings. Some say Morris was far too eager to prove the existence of the paranormal that his rational thinking was affected. He wanted so badly to prove spirits could communicate with us because he would have done anything to know communication with his late daughter was possible. Others say Morris gave this case the credibility it needed and deserved and paved the way for other investigators to join and help legitimize other paranormal claims. Regardless of what you think about Morris and his motives, he definitely had a major part in this story. I think it's safe to say he spent the most time, energy, and effort trying to figure out this case over all the other paranormal investigators, including Ed and Lorraine. There's another man that put in the work alongside Morris and deserves credit as well, Guy Lyon Playfair. Mr. Playfair was a parapsychologist and writer of parapsychology. He was a firm believer of the paranormal and stated he believed the activity in the Hodgson home was legitimate. He does state, however, that he did question some of the disturbances and the girls' involvement in them. He often wondered if the girls were exaggerating things somehow or just plain playing tricks. But he still maintained until his death that the activity in the Hodgson home was real and did happen as they said it did. To further this idea of whether or not the children were simply playing tricks, a skeptic named Joe Nickel said he analyzed Playfair's many accounts and concluded all the activity could be explained simply as childish pranks. As the tests were ran and the children continued to maintain they were telling the truth, things started to fall apart on them. At one point, the girls were caught red-handed playing a prank on Mr. Gross. When the girls were confronted about their prank, they admitted about 2% of the activity was faked by them. They explained it was either to keep the investigators there so they wouldn't leave before figuring out what was happening to them, or because they wanted to amp it up to be taken more seriously. Either way, faking any of this is not a good look. This was also addressed in the movie, but given a much more dramatic and sinister twist. When Janet is caught faking and she is asked why she did it, she explains the spirit told her if she didn't, it would kill the warrants. This plays on the idea that children are susceptible to this threat and will do anything to protect those they love. Instead of including the fact that Janet and Margaret admitted to faking and their actual reasoning. These movies don't provide facts. They provide drama. But Morris didn't seem to care that they faked some of it. To him, it only meant the girls were really going through something unexplainable and traumatic, and this was their way of coping. It hindered his beliefs in absolutely no way. Even when the others caught the girls faking, they were still believed. They insisted most of it was real. Only 2% of it was faked, according to Janet. So let's go there for a minute and talk about the people who thought the girls were simply faking for attention. Not only do I highly disapprove of portraying something as true when it isn't, I also can't stand when a person's character is misrepresented to make a quick buck. Let's talk about how badly the film The Conjuring 2 made Morris Gross and Anita Gregory look. Making Morris out to be a fool and Anita a villain. I read an article on Player.one where this exact sentiment is addressed. Another part of this whole story that irritates me Morris not only is given zero credit for this investigation in the film, aside from his meeting with the Warrens to help further their investigation, but he's portrayed as unable to handle the case and the Warrens take over. Not cool. Morris deserves far more credit, and I highly recommend watching the BBC's film about the Hodgson family investigation. It does a far better job of covering things and giving Morris the credit he deserves for the work he put in on this case, as well as Guy Playfair. I also definitely recommend the podcasts he did interviews on. Those will be linked in the show notes as well. But aside from Morris being pushed to the wayside of this case, there's Anita Gregory and her contributions. Anita was a parapsychologist and also a psychologist. In the film, she is portrayed as the skeptic, the bad guy even. Janet has given interviews saying Anita made her feel like she didn't believe her and she was faking. But Anita was only one of the many who were seeking the truth. 
She used her tools as a trained psychologist to address the matter versus going in it in full belief of the paranormal allegations. This would be me in this case. As much as I want to believe it, I hate being fooled. I want all the facts, paranormal and practical, before I will decide what I believe is happening. So I wanted to take a moment and shout out Anita Gregory. She's the real MVP in this case. She tried her best before being pushed out of the investigation to show it for what it was versus perpetuating a story without all the facts. I wish I could interview her and hear her opinions on this case after the release of the movie. But her opinion in 1977, as far as I can find, is as follows. Anita worked for the Society of Psychical Research in the UK and took part in the investigation of the infield haunting. She reported that she found the girls' incidents to be, quote, overrated and their behaviors suspicious. Her opinions that the girls were simply playing tricks on the reporters and other investigators were backed by the former president of the Society for Psychical Research, John Bailoff, who claims Janet was simply using ventriloquism to put on the voice of Bill. Anita also brings up the fact that the girls were caught on camera bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar to play tricks on the investigators. But as we know, this was swept under the rug with the excuse that the girls just wanted to be believed and didn't want the investigators to leave before getting to help them. I believe this was mostly Morris supporting the girls in this matter because he wanted so badly to believe they were telling the truth. So, Anita wrote her report based on the things she witnessed and the opinion she had and turned it into the Society for Psychical Research. I imagine her handing it in, fully confident her logical and skeptical view would be taken seriously and addressed. However, it was not. The Society for Psychical Research never published her critical report on the Enfield case. This is addressed by a man named Bob Cootie in his 1988 book, Forbidden Knowledge, Paranormal Paradox, on page 64. Quote, The Society for Psychical Research has been forced to suppress one extremely critical report on the Enfield case by the late Anita Gregory for fear of a libel action. I'm not sure why there was fear of that, but I definitely bought this book, and I will report back after I've read it. Another quote from this book by Bob Cootie that I found interesting was, The case remains very controversial. Gross, Playfair, Hasted, and others believed it was genuine. Anita Gregory and other members of the SPR were unconvinced. Magicians and ventriloquists came to the conclusion that Janet was cheating. End quote. Again, how funny. There is absolutely no mention of the Warrens in these quotes. Although the quote and others could include them. The book is shipping to me from overseas, so I won't have it for a while, but I will definitely update after I read it. So what do you think about that? Knowing they were caught red-handed, faking the activity, yet it was dismissed like it was merely a hiccup? The case still baffled people all over the world, and no one could explain it away to anyone's satisfaction. To this day, Janet and her sister Margaret stand by their stories. Their mother Peggy, up until the day she passed, maintained her story and continued to live in the house. It was council housing, after all. It's not like she, a single mother of four, could just up and move. She claims the activity continued but lessened. And even today, neighbors that weren't even around at the time of the haunting say, there's just no way that house isn't haunted. Ask anyone, they'll say, there's definitely something going on in that place. I actually have a friend that lives really close to this home on Green Street in Enfield. I eventually plan to visit her and knock on the door myself. Hopefully soon I can do that and give you all an update. I will also attempt to reach out to any neighbors for comment and report back. Okay, so by now you're probably all thinking to yourselves, I thought this podcast was about the haunted cases of Ed and Lorraine Warren, not this gross or playfair person. <laughs> and you're right, it is. But they just weren't involved. They did not go to Enfield and spend days and days with the Hodgsons and Janet trying to save her. In reality, Janet didn't even need saving. Her life was not threatened at any point in the story. Though, she and the movie will tell you differently now. 
Janet, as an adult, states in an interview that the Warren saved her life, that she surely would have died with the way the drapes wrapped themselves around her neck and tried to strangle her. So here's the thing. That didn't ever happen. At least no one except Warner Brothers has that documented. And the Warrens definitely did not save her from this malicious spirit. It's strange to watch the interviews with Janet and Margaret as adults. They talk like the movie is 110% true facts. They give crazy amounts of credit to Lorraine, both in interviews with and without her. Lorraine gushes over them when she sees them for the first time since the event in the interview organized by the movie's franchise. Janet and Margaret completely perpetuate the events of the film as if they were a documentary. They get emotional and repeatedly thank Lorraine for all that she did. But she wasn't involved. Ed and Lorraine did not save Janet Hodgson from Bill, Fred, or any other spirits or entities. There is not a lick of evidence supporting these claims. The only thing the Warrens did for the Hodgsons was sign them to a movie contract that no doubt paid a pretty penny. Of course they would say the Warrens saved them with that hefty check in their back pockets. Okay, so I'm sure you're all saying to yourselves, but the Warrens did go to Enfield. They did go to the Hodgson home. And that's right, right? <laughs> or maybe not? Let me explain. So, I have found several secondary sources confirming the Warrens hopped on a flight headed for Enfield completely uninvited. No one knew they were coming, and no one asked them to come. According to the accounts I have managed to find, they came, they stayed a couple hours tops, interviewed the family and Janet, recorded it, and left. That is it. There's claims they returned for a second time and did a more thorough investigation, but I can find no evidence of this. Just some random hearsay that was never confirmed. Even more so, I listened to the Warren's book, The Demonologist, on Audible for probably the fifth time, and I caught something I had missed before. According to Ed himself, he went to Enfield without Lorraine. He states it right there in his book, in his own words. He went, not Lorraine. Then, there is absolutely no direct mention of their further involvement in Enfield until the release of The Conjuring 2. The main source confirming Ed did show up, but only for a brief moment, was Guy Playfair. Again, he doesn't actually confirm Lorraine was there. In an interview on another podcast called Midnight in the Desert with Dave Schrader, episode 35, Guy states that the only contribution he can remember Ed attempting to make was the proposition to Mr. Playfair that he could make him a lot of money. Mr. Playfair says he then knew this wasn't someone he wanted anything to do with and politely declined. He also confirms he heard the Warrens came once and did not stay longer than a couple hours, and they never returned to this particular investigation. He says, quote, Nobody ever mentioned him. Nobody in the family had ever heard of him until he turned up. <laughs> End quote. He also mentions he heard Ed had recorded an interview with Janet and didn't believe it to be true. But is it? Guy also states in this interview when asked if he thought the Warrens had good intentions and wanted to help these families, and he directly replies, no, they were just in it to make money. Not once in this interview does Mr. Playfair include Lorraine or mention her presence at Enfield. This confirms and corroborates Ed's own words that only he went to Enfield and only once. Neither Ed nor anyone else ever mentions being at the Hodgson's home, again until the release of The Conjuring 2. But did Ed really interview and record Janet while he was there? During my research, I learned there's a YouTube video of Ed supposedly interviewing Janet. I will link it in the show notes. It's a little over 26 minutes long and insanely hard to hear and make out what's being said due to all the background noise and it being from the 1970s. But in the beginning, you can hear what sounds like Margaret talking and then Janet in the ghost voice of Bill Wilkins. Only it's calling itself Fred this time. And there's a man you can hear asking Janet questions. Fred is answering and Margaret is reiterating or translating as sometimes Fred is hard to understand. 
It sounds rehearsed and honestly like two kids telling a story they made up or are making up as they go. Margaret is laughing at nearly everything her sister says as this Fred entity. In the beginning, the man doing the interviewing is not Ed. About eight or nine minutes in, you hear the man conducting the interview ask Fred if he likes Americans, followed by, does he like Ed Warren? Janet, as Fred, replies, who is Ed Warren? And the man then says, he was here last night. So, this man is not Ed, but Janet, as Fred, confirms she remembers Ed being there the night before. Honestly, I stopped listening around this point because the background noise and the terrible sounds on the recording gave me a migraine. If you read and believe the comments, though, my migraine was a result of demons attached to the recording. <laughs> okay, I'm a believer, but please. The noise is awful and would give anyone a headache. Okay, moving on. This link is also shared by a fan, not the Warren's official YouTube channel. And this fan makes it clear in the caption that they 100% believe the Warren saved this family. The person who shared this video on YouTube claims to be friends with Tony Spear and that Tony gave him the audio file. I seriously wonder about this though, why would Tony allow this, but never share any of the Warrens' evidence on his channel dedicated to the Warrens? That really bugs me. Anyways, throughout their career, the Warrens have claimed to have had countless pieces of evidence, from photos to recordings to videos, and they're almost always stating in interviews that they do. But the amount of evidence they have actually shared with the public is minuscule at best. Ed is notorious for talking a game he can't ever back up, it seems. He's also notorious for making up so-called facts because he knew back then no one could or would fact check him. There was no Google and there was nowhere to obtain this sort of information easily to double check it. He likes to take big uncommon words and redefine them. There's example after example of this in his books and his interviews. It frustrates me when I'm listening to the audible copy of The Demonologist and Ed throws out some Greek word and its quote unquote meaning and I get this urge to look it up only to find out it doesn't mean that at all. My favorite example of this is Ed said, the Greek term excusia means oath, an exorcism invokes a higher power to compel the malicious power to accept an oath contrary to its wishes. And in my research, I learned excusia actually means authority or power. Oh, the irony. That's either confused or just making things up. It's published in one of their many novels, yet no one ever questions what Ed is saying. This bothers me a lot. That's one of the many examples of Ed doing this. He kind of talks out of his ass most of the time, it seems. All right, so moving on. I decided to give the recording another listen after my head didn't hurt so bad anymore. And suddenly, Ed comes into the recording and I recognize his voice instantly. But I can't make out if he has been there the whole time or if he's just walked in. It seems to sound like he was there for at least a few minutes. Ed comes in at about minute 1410 saying, let me see if I can get a little conversation going here with just Fred. And I assume he sits down with Janet as Fred and says, do you know who I am? And the conversation continues. Again, the background noises and sharp high-pitched sounds randomly coming through at louder volume than the people speaking proved to be too much for my ears and I had to call it quits again. I just could not listen to that noise. And then I hit a wall. I had the hardest time finishing this episode because of this recording and its horrendous quality yet seemingly undeniable proof. I had it. Proof Ed did in fact interview Janet during the haunting. But I couldn't make it out enough for it to be of good quality use, and I felt so bad sending all of you to this link to also try and make out its contents. But after I stepped away and got bombarded by live stuff, I finally had a moment to come back to this and made a Facebook post reaching out to anyone who could maybe transcribe it for me so I could at least read it and put it to good use on the episode. Then my dear friend Rachel Neidert commented and said her fiance, Brandon Little, who had some sound equipment, could take a look at it for me. 
And whoa, I am completely floored by the results. He pulled the audio off of YouTube and cleared it up, and the quality is night and day. It's still a 1970-something cassette recording, but by far better quality. This is also what led to Brandon now being my editor and making this podcast 10 times better than it was the first go-round. So thanks, Brandon. And what that means for you listeners is, I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to share a clip here. I will put it in its entirety at the end of the episode. So you can have a listen and see what you think. Here's Ed with Janet, Margaret, and Billy. Also present are Ed's assistants, Paul Bartz and John Kinneyhertz. Ed confirms these assistants by name in chapter 14 of The Demonologist. Fred, you know who I am? I guess you I'm Fred, you know who I am? Ed. Ed, that's right, Fred. Now, Fred, do you like to fight these people? Do you like to fight these people? Uh, no. I don't think so either. What do you think they could do about this whole thing? How do you think that they could get rid of all the things that are happening here? Hello, Dusty. Yes. What kind of soldier? Um, 
I'll do it. Hey, hey, go over low, eh? Go cool What kind? Over low. A soldier? Were you a British soldier? Yeah. And Tom, were you a British soldier? No. You're a liar. No. You're a liar. A what? He's a liar. A warrior? A warrior? Yes. Hey, what are you doing there? He's making something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom, what do you say about this whole thing? I'm not sure. You did find out the toilet up until the other day, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Another toilet. After I finally got to listen to this clip clearly and without interruption, I decided to go back and listen to the demonologist just one more time. Before, I was focused on confirming the Warren's presence in Enfield. Now, 
I'm looking for what Ed had to say about the recordings he mentions he made. And boy, was I floored when I realized Ed had completely transcribed this entire recording I have just shared with you. When I heard him telling this bit before, I completely disregarded it because I was in the mindset of Ed not even actually having such a recording, so I hardly paid it attention before. Imagine my surprise to be listening to the audiobook and Ed's words suddenly transcribing what is in the recording. However, (laughs) you knew it was coming. Okay, so, however, as I'm listening, I'm realizing Ed has started changing what's been said in the recording. Suddenly, his written transcript in his novel no longer matches the words I'm hearing come directly from his own mouth on his recording. Ed, my friend, I've caught you again, buddy. Ed just can't help himself when it comes to embellishing things. So in the audible version I am listening to of The Demonologist by Ed and Lorraine, the reader is reading the transcript as if it were scary, intimidating, and malicious. The sounds the Fred character are making sound evil and foreboding in the novel read by the audible reader. The way it's written, it seems it's intended to be scary as well. But you just listened to the recording. Did you find it scary? Was Fred growling and carrying on in an evil voice? No, of course not. Fred, Janet, Margaret, Billy, and even Ed are all laughing and cracking jokes in the actual recording. Is anyone else bothered by this? We're led to believe these poor children were really suffering. An adult Janet tears up in interviews over and over when remembering how the Warren supposedly saved her life. Why on earth does this recording sound so comical? Another point I'd like to address in regards to the recording versus Ed's written transcription in his novel is he states in the novel that during this recording, things were flying about and knocking and sounds were happening all around them. Um, Ed, do you not remember how you asked Fred to make something move and he said no? He didn't want to. So with everything flying around, you felt the need to ask for something to fly around? Not a good look again, sir. Ed cannot keep things straight throughout his journeys, interviews, and recounts, or he just really has a fibbing problem. He tells some of the truth and then embellishes it to keep the audience's attention, I guess. Sounds just like what the Hartson girls were accused of, doesn't it? Did we really just come full circle? So here we are at the end of this journey. I can't thank you all enough for your patience as I took a break and came back to finish this episode. A huge massive thanks to Rachel Nider and Brandon Little for their help and hard work. Thanks to this episode, Brandon is now responsible for all my editing and sounds. He created the lovely new theme song I have now as well. I just love it so much. He really nailed my vision for it. So another big thank you to my editor and sound specialist, Brandon. You can find him on Instagram by searching Metal and More Soundscapes, all one word. There will also be a link to his page in the show notes and on the Instagram. Thanks again for joining me. I hope you had as much fun listening as I did creating this particular episode. See you next time for episode six, Demons in the Courtroom. Research for this episode was done by me. Editing and sounds by Brandon Little, AKA Metal and More Soundscapes on Instagram. Logo designed by Skip Pollock, Skip underscore Pollock on Instagram. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give the Instagram, Facebook, and the TikTok a follow. Just search Truth or Demons Podcasts. Also, if you had fun, please rate and review. I also wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone that's been waiting patiently for me to release this new episode. I am so sorry for the wait. Everyone knows I am terrible at staying on a schedule. I promise, though, episodes will come. I just can't guarantee when. So I appreciate everyone's patience and continuing to follow along. I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's been in touch with me on the Instagram and I've been chatting with. 
Um, I have interviews coming, um, some really fun ones with some people that I know have a lot of cool things to say and share with you all about the warrants. So those bonus episodes will be coming soon, I promise. Also, I wanted to give a special thanks to Samantha for her voice acting and singing. She's so talented. I'll link her social media in the show notes. See you guys next time. Yay, you remembered. Me too. Okay, let's have some fun. How about some spooky, creepy fun this time? Let's honor the creative genius that is James Wan and take a closer look at The Crooked Man. The Crooked Man is the creepy character slash entity that plagues the Hodgson children in some scenes of the movie. Ed Warren and the little boy, Billy, in particular. The film shows Janet helping Billy with his stutter by singing a song with him that is played by a toy the children own. The song goes as follows, performed again by my lovely friend Samantha. There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked man. He found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat that caught a crooked mouse. And they all lived together in a little crooked house. Later in the film, the crooked man torments Billy by coming to life in a life-size way from the little tiny music box. It chases Billy through the home and at one point even attacks Ed. This character, the crooked man, and its lullaby dates back to a written form in 1842. The original author is unknown and the rhyme was first recorded in print by James Orchard Halliwell. There's a couple origin stories stating the rhyme either came from the inspiration of multicolored houses built at irregular angles in a small village about 70 miles north of London, or another story suggests it came from a period in British history under the rule of King Charles I of England, 1600 to 1649. The Crooked Man also comes up in pop culture after it begins its circulation in the early 1600s, with references to the Crooked Man being the Scottish general Sir Alexander Leslie and the line crooked style in the lyrics representing an alliance between the parliaments of England and Scotland or the border between them, according to some sources. In 1696, a time known as the Great Recoinage resulted in sixpence coins being made of thin silver that was easily bent, hence crooked sixpence in the rhyme. In more recent pop culture, a song released in 1964 called Don't Let the Rain Come Down by the Serendipity Singers incorporates the Crooked Man rhyme. The rhyme can also be heard in the third season of the series Fargo, and the title, There Was a Crooked Man, was used for the film by Norman Wisdom to mock a crooked politician. And finally, the Crooked Man rhyme is used in The Conjuring 2 to bring a sinister twist to the film and storyline. Thanks to James Wan, the incredible Crooked Man character was brought to life to play a creepy role to scare us all in The Conjuring 2. In the film, The Conjuring 2, the Crooked Man music box the children play with becomes the haunted item the Warrens take back home with them to place in their museum of haunted things. They've claimed over and over that their museum in their home is full of items that are possessed, haunted, cursed, or otherwise paranormally dangerous. Since the Enfield case really had no physical memorabilia, this worked just as well as a fictional edition. Not to mention the creepiness it added to the movie. And speaking of creepy, do you guys know exactly how The Crooked Man was brought to life? Did you guess computer animation? CGI? Nope. A real-life person played the role of the Crooked Man in The Conjuring 2, an extremely talented and specially gifted actor named Javier Botet. Javier Botet is a Spanish actor who was diagnosed with the rare condition, Marfan Syndrome, which causes extreme height and a super-thin frame. 
He stands around six foot seven and weighs 123 pounds, or 56 kilograms. In 2013, he began putting himself out there as a real-life monster for hire. He dressed in a creepy outfit and did a screen test that quickly made its way around Hollywood. He was soon starring in big-name films like the 2017 The Mummy, Alien Covenant, the remake of Stephen King's It, and Slenderman as Slenderman. And he played Mama. Remember that movie with the feral little girls? I loved that movie. His incredible ability to move and contort in unnatural ways made him a rising star in horror. When James Wan decided to create the Crooked Man character, he wanted something original, of course, and Javier Botet brought that to the table flawlessly. Javier says he loves the character. It's amazing, beautiful. It's described as whimsical even by the crew that created it. A special suit was designed and constructed to fit skin tight to Javier as well as a custom-designed mask for him to wear. In a YouTube video of some behind-the-scenes footage, they show just how they brought this creepy, amazing character to life. It's linked in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. I definitely recommend it. To have such an amazing, creepy character without any computer assistance is fantastic for the creep factor. So impressive. And even though it wasn't a factual part of the story, as always, bravo, Mr. One. Thanks for scaring the crap out of me. And I just learned that Mr. One intends to create a spin-off film for The Crooked Man's origin story. I have seen the 2016 The Crooked Man with Michael Jai White that has no relation to The Conjuring franchise. And it was terrible. It was a terrible movie. I do not recommend that one. But I'm definitely looking forward to James Wan's version. If it's half as creepy as the Crooked Man character he created for The Conjuring 2, it'll be fantastic. Hope to see a trailer release soon. Okay, guys, that's all the fun I have for you for now. Until next time. There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked mark. He found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat that caught a crooked mouse and they all lived together in a little crooked house. The following is the full recording from Ed's visit to Enfield to interview the Hodgson family. What are you saying? Well, I'm soldier. Soldier? Yeah. What kind of soldier? Charlie Jones, Charlie, and she's in the. We're not making that again. Charlie Jones, Charlie, and she's in the. We're not making that again. 
How many all together, Fred? Butterman. What do you do, Butterman? Uh, 
If you don't behave yourself, you're going to be sent away. Now you talk to me your life. You don't think so? I'm out of here. I'm not queen. I'm out of with you. Can you imitate an animal? Oh, my God. 